Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. Looking nice today. Good to be back. Thanks. Yeah? Yeah. Feeling so good? you, as always. Yeah. Uh, I feel, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Good. Yeah. Well, uh, wish Amy were wish Amy were here. Yeah, she's like still recovering. She is, but you know, I understand she's going to battle through. Yeah, uh, the toe injury and and it's a hard thing and be with us here at the end of the recording. So at the end of the recording, she's going to toe the line. She is. She's. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Goodness. Today we are uh, continuing our uh, series on trauma and uh, turning the corner a little bit today. The title of today's podcast episode is Healing Trauma, The Power of Presence. We have a couple of resources we want to uh, let you know about uh, right away before we jump in um, for today's podcast. We're going to be referring to Healing Trauma by Peter Levine, Eight Keys to Safe Trauma Recovery, by Babette Rothschild. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Pepper, that we're kind of turning, we're making a bit of a turn here. We've we've been talking over the course of this season about a number, we've talked about the features of trauma, we've talked about how it shows up in a number of different settings, and today and uh, in our next episode, before we go to our wrap, uh, we're going to talk more explicitly about you know what are what are some important features about its healing? What do we what do we do with the trauma that we have? And again, uh, one thing that this is that these episodes are not they're they're not as I think you all know they're not intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy or for counseling or for the kind of trauma work that would be important for us to do in a confessional community or in an individual psychotherapy environment. And in light of that, you know this is. This is not going to be an episode, nor will the next one be an episode in which we kind of run through the algorithm of what the actual steps are and what are the things to actually do. I think that those those things are uh, explored in really helpful, concrete, tactical ways in the two resources that we've are you know that we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of these books are really easily accessible. Uh, they're very practical. And they're not; they don't take a long time to to read. I think that if uh, last uh, last I knew, uh, Peter Levine's book also comes with a DVD that you can pop in and uh, offers you ways of exploring some of the exercises that he recommends. And so, I I would invite our, our listeners to uh, take advantage of those resources. What we want to do in the next two episodes, though, I think, is highlight some important important elements especially as we as we think about this this podcast is our our title is being known and we we want to kind of circle back and pay attention to how the process of being known itself is uh in in what ways does it you know does being known play a role in the healing of trauma Hmm. there are a lot of things for us you know that we can recommend to our patients uh just in terms of those kinds of particular psychotherapeutic interventions, even medication interventions, other kind of somatic interventions for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder in particular. Uh, but also if you even if your your experience in life or your symptoms don't extend all the way to what we what we would say in the business of meeting criteria for a diagnosis of PTSD, uh, there are still things that we employ from an intervention standpoint that would be good for people to explore and access that we will hint at here in these two this this episode and our next one, um, but that we're not trying to explain and explore all those kinds of things. Instead, we really want to take a look at some general principles that are important for people, and I think for us to to for our listeners to hear and reflect on, consider, and allow these to be guiding principles for the process of the healing of trauma that takes place in all those different modalities that you'll read about in those two books and that you would, you know, that would take place in any kind of psychotherapy environment. We begin this episode by just reminding ourselves that trauma is an experience 
that disintegrates systems. It disconnects systems, both at what we call the macro and the micro level. It doesn't just, it disintegrates when I, when I experience trauma, I have a disconnection, a disintegration between the different functional parts of my mind, what I sense and image and feel and think, how I tell my story, how I even perceive the nature of what has actually happened to me, how I perceive the nature of what I perceive of my future and the story that I imagine that that's going to be. Disintegration is a hallmark of that. And so parts of me get separated from other parts of me, literally from a neural network standpoint, but also from my experiential standpoint. It's not, it's not easy sometimes for me to uh, explore or look at those emotional states that I feel because it's, it's too hard to be with them or it's too difficult for me to remember, to recall events. I don't want to be present with them because the reconnecting, the coming back together, the being with process is way too overwhelming. I don't want to allow certain parts of me to be known, as it were, by other parts of me because it is too overwhelming and I don't have a sense that I have the agency to repair that, which is, again, back to those two pillars of what we refer to when we talk about trauma. And in addition to my having things separated apart from each other within myself, I'm also separated from others. One of the hallmark features of trauma is how often it makes it difficult for me to be connected to you, difficult for me to be connected to others. I can only really be connected to others to the degree that I'm also willing to allow different parts of me to be connected to other parts of me, some of which are too overwhelming or I hate, you know, the part of me that says to the other part of me, why didn't you do something different to prevent the teacher from abusing you? The part of me that feels responsible, the part of me that feels ashamed even now, the part of me that I I don't want people to even look at me physically, so I will use food as a way to put on the weight and the more weight I put on, the more distance I put literally between me and you but also it makes it less likely that you will look at me with any kind of sense of being of wanting to be present to me, being with me, being present to me, because if you were, that evokes all these things that are so difficult. And so there is this tearing apart. There is this separation both within me and between me and my relationships that is one of the hallmarks of trauma and we have hinted at this, and sometimes we've even been more explicit over the course of these episodes. We've hinted at this notion that the healing of trauma, the healing of our word, of our of our world, begins with God's willingness to be present. Emmanuel. That God in Jesus comes naked into the world, leaves Jerusalem naked, beaten, bruised, battered, put to death. N- naked, he comes vulnerably, he comes to be present with us. And he comes to invite our willingness to look upon him, both as a newborn, who's vulnerable enough that his parents have to flee to Egypt in fear of his life, and vulnerable as an adult, in order to call forth the parts of us that we hate the most, in order to reacquaint us with parts of ourselves that heretofore we have learned to hate, that we have learned to bury, that we've learned to disconnect from, disintegrate from, because they're just way too overwhelming for us. It's not just that the situation that happened to me is overwhelming. At this point, I am overwhelming to me because I'm the one who remembers the situation. So I can't tolerate my own memory. I can't tolerate my own emotion. And these things belong to me. The events happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, but they are housed and are active currently in my brain. They're not housed 15 years ago. They're active right here and now in my mind, and I'm working really hard to keep that out of my conscious awareness. You know, there is a uh, well-known novel that that was written back in the late 1950s. uh, The title of the novel is Things Fall Apart by the Nigerian author Chinua Achebe. And I've not read the novel, but I like, it's interesting, like the novels that you've ne- that I've never read, but that I'm like completely familiar with, like I'm, I'm just right. aware. It's like <laughs> when I was in college, 
Now, wait a minute. And, Listen, uh, you have a full career that you're that you're deep in right now, man. Don't be confessing something here on the podcast about, you know, all the cliff notes that you used in college because it's it's not going to do you any good. That's just <laughs> I'm just you know I'm your friend, and I'm just going to put a halt on this right now because you know you did pass the medical boards, right? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Dude, it's worse than that. Oh, gosh. Stop. <laughs> no, this is what I mean. I mean, here's the example. Like, I, I, went, I, I went to school where I was hanging out with people who were studying philosophy and religion and so forth, you know, while I was driving myself mad being a chemistry major. And Soren Kierkegaard, mm. famous Danish philosopher Christian, Kierkegaard was like, like he was a thing. And, you know, I mean, and he was very sexy, right? And so to, to like, to, to drop, Sir, you know, Cor- Kierkegaard's, look, I can't even say it. Right. Sorkin Kierkegaard, Sorkin Siren. Pippin, Pippin, Tirpin, No, you sound like me. <laughs> it's like, it's like, hey, Beaker. Right, right. You know, it, it would it would be it would be kind of it's it was cool. Like whenever you're in conversation, somebody says, "Well, Kierkegaard says this, Kierkegaard says that," right. and like and like here's the thing: nobody was well, except for my one good friend Jeff, who's like the smartest guy I know. Nobody was actually reading Kierkegaard. Nobody like like you, like we just said, "Oh yeah, yeah, Kierkegaard, yeah, hey, the the K bro, right?" That's right. like the, the K bro, like like and like no, no, no. I I never I wasn't reading Kierkegaard. Like I only started to read this guy about three years ago. And when I started to read him, realized why I wasn't reading him in college. <laughs> you know, so I'm just saying, it was really cool to like allow people, you know, you, and, and you, you know, you, you, you were careful about it. Like you didn't actually say, yes, I read something when you didn't. Right. You don't tell a bald face, bald face lie. You just kind of like let it kind of be assumed that you have read the Kierkegaard library when you're still working to try to pronounce the dude's name. Got it. So I haven't read Things Fall Apart, but I have read a fair bit about it. I'm I'm aware of the, I'm aware of the story. And for those of you who haven't read it, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a novel, a fictional novel about, you know, a, a character in, in Africa who encounters and experiences and endures and the, the aftermath of uh, what it was like for their, you know, the culture of the main character to deal with a European culture that was descending upon them. And it's a, it's a powerfully tragic story and in which the title, Things Fall Apart, is just apt. And it is a story of one traumatic event after another uh, that has wrapped up in it the church and culture clashes and so forth and so on. And I just want to acknowledge that this whole notion of disintegration is this primary feature of trauma and shows up not just in my, not, it, 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 it's not just a function of what happens to me. It is a function of our world. And that novel is uh, a powerful example of, um, of a story that tells the story of the world in many respects. And it tells the story of a world even in which the church plays no small role. And as we talked about in the last episode, this notion, as Newbigin rightly points out, that it is in our religion where we are more willing to abuse our power and become like God than as much as in any domain of life's existence. And so... We focus on this this notion of things falling apart because in that in that process and context, those things that do get disconnected end up being in isolation. They live in isolation from one another. And this leads to our ongoing process of being more distant from ourselves and from others. And the first step toward the healing of trauma is putting the pause on that continued trajectory of 
parts of us being further and further and further apart from each other and we being further and further apart from one another and starting to turn that trajectory around. You know, in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis's wonderful short novel about this trip that a group of people make from hell to heaven and what they have to encounter there, he describes heaven as a place where, I mean, he describes hell as a place where people are building their homes continually further and further and further apart from one another so that they can have less and less and less to do with each other. And so the healing of trauma begins with our willingness to actually come closer, our willingness to become present, present with parts of ourselves, present with each other. And in order for us to do this, we have to take the first risky steps of allowing others to come closer and be present with us. And that's the catch-22, because it's, you know, so often it's the trauma that was, you know, happened to us happens in relationship. And then you want to, you want to, you know, cut that part of you off because you don't want to risk it again. And this is where the, I, you know, I think the brave work happens, right? Where, you know, because you have to take a chance of getting hurt again. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I have this, I have this story. I was a kid. Uh, my brothers were much older than me and I had one, one of my brothers was married and had kids and I would, if I would be in their home, um, I would sometimes babysit for mm-hmm. the, for my brother and his wife and the, the kids were young and I was like, you know, I was 12, 13 and I would babysit for them and, uh, they, you know, maybe go out to dinner or they would go do something. And, um, but they had a dog. My brother and his wife bought this dog. The dog's name was Coco. I still remember to this day. And uh, this dog, when they brought it home and when I was first there, and I would be there fairly often enough that the dog should be able to get familiar with me, the dog was terrified of me. And I, I like, I love dogs. And I, and I, like, I, I was, like, sad that the dog wouldn't, like, the dog wouldn't approach me. I'd come in, the dog would run the other way, right? Like, the dog was cool with my brother and my sister-in-law, but, like, not, not me. Like, the, the dog wouldn't have anything to do with me. And, uh... I would, you know, I'd sit in the room and I'd just, like, call to it. I, like, I, I, would, I would try not to, like, I, I would try never to spook it. I would, like, and, like the dogs, like, would, like, stand on the other end of the room and just look. Yeah. And it's just like a little, like a little, like a little chihuahua. That's, that's what it, it was, just a, little, just, just a little thing. So one night I'm babysitting and I'm, uh, uh, I think I was just watching something on television. But I'm, I'm laying on the floor of the living room watching something or listening to something on the radio. I forget what it was. I'm laying on the floor. And I see the dog, like, comes in through the kitchen. And I'm like, I'm just not going to move. I'm going to pretend that I'm not even here. I'm just, I'm just not going to say a thing. And the dog comes in, and I, like, and I have no idea, like, like, where the dog had, like, met Jesus, had a conversion experience. I, I, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's own Damascus Road thing. But over the course of about, I don't know, it must have been 20 or 30 minutes, like a long time. I'm just listening to the, the dog kind of comes in, goes back out, comes in, comes back out. And every time it would come in, it would just get a little closer to me. Then it would start to sniff me. And I'm not moving. I'm, I'm laying like, and my legs are behind me, stretched out on the floor. And of course, about 20 or 30 minutes, the dog makes its way in between my legs and just nestles in, settles down, and just plants herself. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like, I can't believe it. And so now, like, the dog is there. Like, I start, like, I got to go to the bathroom. But like, <laughs> I, but, like, I'm not moving. Like, this dog finally likes me. I'm not going to, like, I don't care what it takes. If this dog stays here, like, for, like if I got to wet my pants, like, I am not moving. Because that's the way it is yeah. with us. We like, and I like, and I don't know what that dog's experience was that made it so skittish with someone who is like familiar but yet not. But the parts of our brains that are very much like reptiles and very much that operate at the level of the dog. We've talked in in previous episodes. We've mm-hmm. talked about that. This polyvagal theory. This this autonomic nervous system part of us that is so in charge of our fear responses. And all it takes is like one glance or one shift in the tone of voice 
And we're like, no. I love this notion that Jesus, you know, why didn't Jesus start his ministry when he was 18? Like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Like, why was it at 30 and not like 45? I don't know. But there was a sense in which he's easing into this. He's not just like coming in and just going to take the world by storm. God didn't take the world by storm at any point along the way after the flood. Because even then, right, there's a sense in which the flood didn't really clear up the problem. And, you know, he, the Israelites, they come in, they come into the land of Canaan and, and they're like 400 years of chaos before David, Saul takes the throne. Like it takes time for us to become comfortable with presence. This is not unlike Jennifer, who uh, a patient of mine who she grew up in a house where her father was a long haul airline pilot, would be away for stretches of 10 days at a time, come back. A father who loved her and her siblings, but was away. Right. But left her with a mom who was frequently depressed, uh, frequently, you know, took care of her depression with alcohol, and uh, it was pretty unpredictably, could be unpredictably withdrawn and angry. I mean, if, if, if Jennifer would upset her, mom would not, not talk to her for two weeks. Like, can you imagine? No. So this was, a, this was not a girl who was beaten by her father. This was not a girl who was sexually abused. But this is a girl whose mind was traumatized. And in addition to this, she's got two younger siblings for which she's like looking around and seeing like, it's not just happening to her, it's happening to everybody. And so not only is it her own state of mind that she's having to take care of, like she's got these other two siblings that she's feeling protective of. Jennifer grows up to become an adult. She marries this gregarious, fun guy, uh, but who's emotionally disconnected. And by disconnected, I don't mean that he didn't feel things. But he was a guy who wasn't really paying much attention to his inner life because he also was disconnected from things. And so the way that he covered that was with his humor and with his activity, all of which was wonderful and lovely. But at the same time, he was using as a way to protect himself as well. And whenever he wouldn't be able to connect with her, these old demons of what it would be like to have mom go into her bedroom, close the door and not like talk to her would show up. And so, not surprisingly, she found herself one day, one day, on the verge of an affair with a neighborhood, one of her neighbors, who was a stay-at-home dad. Because this is a guy who would listen. This is a guy who would pay attention. This is a guy who wasn't really all that excited about the life he was living. And this, of course... You know that what what brought them into the what brought her into the office was like oh I'm 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 really upset because I'm having an affair, and so the identified problem is like I'm having an affair and that, I mean she it, it didn't go that far but it was it was close and she became aware of this and you know she had a couple of friends who were like what's going on with you and Don you know Donald I guess neighbors even right it's like we're noticing things like what's up and so she had she had friends but she's like this is upsetting to me that I'm having an affair the whole notion that this was resourced from the time that she was born that she had trauma that had taken place that you know for her you know from her standpoint like it didn't look like trauma she just lived with a mother who was depressed and angry yeah okay but like I got my college degree and I'm now married to this fun guy and all these things. And yeah, my dad loved me. I mean, yeah, he was a pilot and he was rarely around, but he loved me. And I know that all these things, all these stories that we tell that help us stay distant from the parts of us that are so overwhelmed, that feel so broken, that are longing for someone not to shut me out of your bedroom. Instead, being depressed and, you know, drinking your wine until you, you know, you pass out. And this whole notion that her disconnection, her trauma, was primarily a function of this sense of being disconnected and all the emotional upheaval that was you know, related to that. And so what we call a proximity to care, you know, her proximity to care, like she, there's a problem, she makes an appointment, she comes in to see me, we start to talk, and the very act of her even making the phone call is a movement toward as it turns out, it was going to be me. It could have been any one of the other uh, counselors on our staff. But the very act of like moving toward a male 
moving towards someone that she wanted to get help from, but the very nature, as you rightly said, Pepper, earlier, the very nature of the moving toward starts to evoke not only the longing, but also the sadness, and in her, in her case, the rage of what had happened to her because of relationship. And so as she progressed, she found herself in this space where, you know, it's kind of like the dog that gradually comes in and comes out and comes in and comes out and comes in and comes out. And at some point, I have to be willing, we have to be willing to remain present and to be in a space where we long for people to come. And at the same time, I can't control the pace at which the dog is going to come in and eventually like become my friend and find itself being able to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. And the same thing was true for Jennifer. And, you know, one of the first things that we say about presence is that if I'm going to be present to somebody else, I first myself have to be, as we like to say, awake, alert, and attuned not just to her, not just to Jennifer, but awake and alert and attuned to my own story. And I can't be awake and alert and attuned to Jennifer if I don't have someone else being awake, alert, and attuned to me. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we talk about with, you know, the, you know we like to say in our, in our business that you can't give people what you don't have. And we as therapists or those of us who are listening who are, Anyone who's in the helping profession, you could be a pastor, you could be a teacher, you could be a coach, or if we're in the profession of being a human being. Yeah, you could be a friend, right? I mean... Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we sometimes say that in our confessional communities, what we really long to, what we're doing is we're training to become professional human beings. This notion that I want to be someone who is both receiving and giving. I'm going to be a conduit is what I'm going to be of life and love. And I can't give if I'm not receiving. I, I, I can't do it. Now I, now, I have all kinds of ways of, you know, as, as Jennifer did, right? She learned how to cope. She learned how to take care of her two younger siblings. She learned how to do lots of things that enabled her to cope. But those coping strategies were also intended to contain and tamper down the pain and the trauma of her growing up years, which then began to find an outlet in her neighbor, right? The neighbor reveals a sense of being interested. Yeah, it's, it's filling a legitimate need. I mean... Right. Yeah. The neighbor was awake, alert, and attuned to Jennifer. And when the light comes, like we run for daylight if we're in a blackened vault. Right. And so she was aware that one could be awake, alert, and attuned. But how do you do that in a way that's not going to itself traumatize you. Because as we said earlier, like pretty clearly, like the neighbor knows that, like the neighbor's married, you're married, the neighbor knows this. Uh, the neighbor is uh, taking advantage of this. Like we can call it whatever we want. We're in love with each other. We, uh, you know, but but, the, but, at, but fundamentally, like the neighbor is taking advantage of right. you. Like he's using you to meet a need that he has. Right. That is, that whether you like, you, you can call it, we're in love, but primarily the neighbor is actually taking advantage of you. And so we had to practice helping her become awake, alert, and attuned in a way that did not feel like it was going to threaten her. And at the same time, that did not take away her agency to decide how close does she want to come to me, in this case, on her terms at any given, at any given moment. And of course... When we started to talk about these things and she starts to become like attuned and, and, and like aware of like, oh my gosh, this isn't just about an affair. This is about like my life. You know, the pulling back of the curtain on this is both revealing and liberating because we are now aware. And it is like just, it's completely, you know, it just, it just guts her. Yeah. Because like I thought I could just work on the affair, but now i got to like work on like 40 years of life. You get like how... It's so overwhelming. And so even then my awareness of what has happened can sometimes 
push me back into places where I don't, I, I can't imagine doing this work of healing. And so I can move the very act of coming towards someone, proximity. Once I touch that, I can find myself having reactions to this and was like, no, I'm, I'm leaving. I, I, I can't do this. It's too overwhelming. Which we say, yeah, I get that. I really get that. And let's just remember that it's already overwhelming. It's overwhelming your system, which is why you're here. Because your system can no longer keep doing what you've been doing, not for just the last, like, 18 months, but what you've been doing for the last 39 years. And so uh, one of the things, though, that I point out when she says, like, no, I'm not going to be okay. I'm like, look, you actually are okay. We like to talk about, like, she was, she was basically, you know, I'm worried I'm failing to thrive. I am overwhelmed. And I was like, no, you're not failing to thrive because you're here in my office. Like you are here. We are talking. And of course this day, like to draw someone's attention, to become awake, alert, and attuned to where we are. Remember trauma has us going other places back in my past with my, all my regrets and all my blame about myself and others or into my future where all I see is catastrophe, all I see is hopelessness, all I see, these other things like, and all I, and, and it just fills me with this felt sense of hopelessness, overwhelm. But if you, if we can work to draw my attention to right here, we can, in our bodies, our minds, we can be present right here and be aware that like, oh, right here, right now, I'm actually okay. Like literally sitting in your office, I can feel my feet on the floor. I feel the comfort of the couch. I feel that I hear the tone of your voice. I'm aware of the view out your window. I'm like, I'm here. And because you're here, you're not failing to thrive. If you're listening to this episode, I want to assure you, You are right here, right now, in this moment, because the Holy Spirit is with us and is on the loose. You are not failing to thrive. And you might think, well, Kurt, like you don't know my situation because if like look, look, if you if you knew my life, like you like like the whole thing is one big failure to thrive. It's like I I I completely comprehend how it is possible for us to tell our story that way, and that has everything to do with where we are directing our attention. Somewhere along the line. Even though that dog, Coco, does not have a human prefrontal cortex, somewhere along the line, that dog, Coco, had to allow its experience of what was happening in the room with me become the thing that the dog paid the most attention to. Whatever was wrapped up in that dog's brain, in literally their lower brain, what we call the paleo-mammalian brain of a dog, or the the reptilian brain of a lizard, that all that a dog has, both of those, the dog doesn't have a well-developed prefrontal cortex where it can say, well, I'd look at the landscape. This is safe. I'm just going to like sit down next to this dude, right? No, it's having to feel its way toward me. Somewhere along the line, that dog's attunement was paying attention to what was actually happening right here and now. And in so doing, he becomes more, she becomes more proximal to me. This is really hard for us to do. And so it's a long road of practicing to be more alert, not in defense, not on high alert with my amygdala and my brainstem, but be alert to what is happening in the moment right here. Where is safety to be found right here and now? And that sometimes takes a long road of practice. You look like you want to say something. No, I was just thinking, you know, one of the things that I've simple things that I've been doing as, as far as like, um, being present is, you know, trying to practice this five senses, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. So sitting in the morning and it's, you know, what is one thing I taste? What is one, what are two things I feel? What are three things I see? What are four things I hear? Uh, what are five things I touch or, you know, feel kind of thing. And so just going through and practicing, and it's all about just practicing to be present, to be, mm-hmm. to, to be centered and present. Mm-hmm. Because like you say, you, you have to have it in you to be able to then take it into the next. Like for me to be present with you, I have to understand what it means to be present, period. Right? Yep. yep. So yep. So it's like practicing so that I can be present in every moment and then be present, mm-hmm. be present with you. 
But I there there is I love that that we've titled this the power of presence because it, it is powerful, right? Mm-hmm. It is to be able to be in a room with you, Kurt, and be mm-hmm. in conversation with you, and mm-hmm. that be just where I am, and not mm-hmm. it, it it is um, you know it allows me to not be anxious and worried about the next things that that I, that I that I have to do because that's where we or that's where I you know you can live a lot of your life is just right. being worried about the next thing or like you say looking in the rearview mirror and worrying about the past that's still coming coming mm-hmm. at you but if you can be present and you can you know have people in your life that you dwell and gaze and inquire mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it it's make makes a huge difference. Right. Yeah. So tactically, you know, it, it began with with Jennifer. You know, for her at first, you know, we, we you know, we've talked so much about trauma in the body and how much we need to pay attention to that. But for her it was even difficult for her to begin there because the moment that she would start to like look inward, as it were, um, there would be a certain signals of a distress that she's even feeling and it, and, and her own body would be overwhelming to her. And we eventually got to that, but so we would start like, I just want attunement. I, I, you know, we would practice with her, like literally paying attention to me. And by that, I I mean that like quite explicitly. I'm like, I want you to, um, and I, I, you know, she took a picture of me. I said, get your phone out, take a picture of me. And I, I tried to like, look at her with a gaze of loving kindness. And I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know what, you know, if, if people would think that that would be a good thing to do for me, for me, you know, that if they were like, gosh, could you... Could you give me somebody else to look at, please? <laughs> but like, you know, hopefully a, a, a gaze of loving kindness. And then I, I would say like, I, I, I just want you to observe. Like, I don't want you to like make up, like, fi- I don't want you to fig- try to figure out what I'm thinking. Like, what does this mean? I don't know. I just want you to observe. Like, um, I, if you were to describe what you see, you know, and like, oh yeah, some middle-aged white dude. No, I, I'm not. I'm 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 looking for like, uh, what do what do do I look uh, harsh? Do I look kind? Do I you know what what do I do I look like I'm present with you? Do I what, what I and I don't want you to give meaning to it. I just want you to start to observe and get comfortable just observing what you see. Observe like look at my posture. Do I look comfortable? Do I look tense? I want you to pay attention to this, and I want you to take a picture of it, and I want you to practice looking at this. So she's learning, like, literally to be attuned to, like, the environment, not unlike the dog. Like, the dog's not thinking, hmm, I don't know, like, I don't know how much experience he's had with dogs. I think I want to interview him and see what, whether, we, but I'm going to interview him from over here. No, he doesn't get that opportunity. The dog has to observe, like, literally live into what the dog actually observes. And so there's attunement to me, and we went from there to her attunement to herself. Like when she would start to feel things, we would say, what, what, are, you, what are you sensing in your body? Right? Two, what are you feeling? All those things that you just said. I love that. Like, I don't think I've heard that. Like, one of this, two of this, three of this, four of this, five of this. Like, I, I, like our audience, like, like, that's a great exercise to bring us into this present moment. And that kind of a thing for her, what are you sensing, imaging, feeling, thinking, again, observing? We've talked before about this tripod of awareness that we want to be open, we want to be observant, and we want to be objective. And by objective, in that we see the entire object of who we are. And then becoming aware and attuned of other people, to others as a body of people. Eventually, she made her way into one of our confessional communities, which is where this really started to take off. And so, more specifically, when she started to become attuned to her own body, we helped her practice paying attention to what her perceptions are like. What do I perceive, right? Remember, one of the pillars of trauma, or the two pillars of trauma, depend upon how we perceive the world. So what am I perceiving? First of all, what am I perceiving? And then what is the meaning that I'm making of it? How do I perceive my nonverbal cues that I receive from others, but also that I give to others and that I give to myself? We're just observing these things. We walked her through you know, the polyvagal theory. We walked her through her autonomic nervous system. We walked her through the way that her body was so much in charge of and responding to her experience of trauma. We then moved from there to giving her other concrete interventions. We've talked before, perhaps we've mentioned EMDR, neurofeedback, other kinds of body work 
the author Pat Ogden has done some marvelous work. Uh, uh, we've talked about The Body Keeps the Score. There are a range of different ways in which we were giving her greater agency because this was not, the healing of her trauma was not just a thinking project. We were beginning where God begins. And God took dust from the earth and he formed the man. We begin at the beginning. We follow God's lead and we do what he does. We begin with our bodies and only then do we start to pay attention to the breath, to what we think, what is the meaning that I'm making out of this. And as she moved then into a confessional community, we discovered what it was like for her to have others coming to find her. What does it mean, not just for me, right? Because when she is working with me, she gets an opportunity to practice over several months of having this same predictable person come. But what do you do when you step into a room with six or seven other people that you've never met before? And the only person that you know in the room is me. And as much as we, you know, it's again, it's much as much as we talk about the beauty of how this is going to be in my confidence in her ability to come into the room and what she's going to offer to the room as much as what it's going to offer, all those things. That this is now a new learning curve. And so she's going to have to pay attention not just to her embodied responses to them, per se, but she's going to be in a place where she's responding to, and again, not just to one or two people, but to an entire room of people at one time. And from a quantum mechanics standpoint, that's responding to a much, much bigger body of incoming sensory experience. Well, what's so amazing about it is when that sensory experience is one of compassion and mercy. When she finds herself feeling overwhelmed in her own body and the entire group of people are more than happy to just be present with her. There's no rush. There's no urgency. There's no sense of like, could you just please get your crap together soon enough so that we can get on to the next person who needs to talk? No, they were coming to find her, something that her mother was unable to do. Now, of course, the coming to find her, and it wasn't me with whom she'd had practice, the coming to find her evokes the whole thing of like, will you leave? Will you leave? When would you like, is this like all the things, right? And the most recent experience of someone coming to find her that she wanted to come to find her, her neighbor down the street, like, like that, like that, that story didn't end well. And my dad, who would come home after 10 days of being, you know, flying overseas and then coming back, like, are you going to leave once you do find me? Are you, and, are, and when you do leave, are you going to leave me with something inside of myself? Like, you're, gonna, you're now going to, like, you know, you're going to fly back to Asia and leave me with her and your other two children that I have to take care of? And so we went from these embodied experiences to her practicing finding words, right? Because I got to, like, if I don't, if I don't have, like, I got I to find words, that I can find quickly enough and effectively enough to match the things I'm sensing and imaging and feeling. And with that finding words then, over time, this, like, I mean to tell you, Van Gogh has never done anything more beautiful than to watch Jennifer's traumatic wounding become the very source of the creation of beauty, the likes of which she would never have predicted. But she's learning to do it in the context of presence. People who are willing to sit for as long as they need to sit, to lay on the floor watching television for as long as it takes for that little puppy to show up and nestle itself in, and exhale. A bruised reed our king will not break. He comes with presence to the places that are the hardest for us to allow him to come. And he doesn't come forcing his way or twisting our arms. But he does come with expectation. He does not come with impatience. He does not come with urgency, but he comes with a demand. 
He comes with an expectation, and the demand and the expectation is what the Holy Trinity's presence is all about. And that demand is, abide in me. Be present with me. He's not going to urgently make you come on his timetable. But if you're going to find life, we're going to find it in abiding. And he'll say, when you're ready, my abiding presence will already have been there before and after. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. And, you know, we talked in our last episode about trauma in the church and like the whole notion of like abiding in the church for many of us is just like, it just gives us like a, you know, anaphylactic allergic reaction because it's hard when we've been wounded. But this is what Jesus asked for. Abide in me and I in you. And that takes practice. And when I can't do it with Jesus, the way I need to do it is in a body of people who are willing to come for me. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like, you know, it's like me practicing my presence in the morning and then being able to be more present with you. Yeah. We practice our abiding with one another and then we can abide with God in a deeper level. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's like we often say that, uh, you know, when people say, well, I can, I can trust God, but I can't trust people. I was like, well, we actually only trust either one of them to the degree that we're just willing to trust. And, uh, you know, I can trust, I, 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 I believe in a Jesus who comes for me because I know you come for me and you have, and that makes Jesus believable. He's not speaking from a distance, from outer space, or from even across town. So when he says in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, Lord. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not leaving the room. You can take as long as you need to take to come in and come out and come in and come out and finally nestle yourself under, you know, with me. I'm not leaving the room. My invitation is for you to then do the work of the body of Christ from 1 Corinthians 12, this notion that Paul writes about in this beautiful description of how we belong to each other, each serving our own different roles. And of course, shame will want to elbow its way in the room and push us out. But we know that this is all part of the long, slow work of God. And we want our listeners to be hopeful And we know that the degree to which we are afraid to allow presence into our lives such that healing can take place is commensurate with how badly we've been wounded. Mm. And Jesus is not worried about this, or is he afraid of it? Mm. He's going to take as long as it takes because he's that committed to uncovering, turning over every stone where the residue of trauma lives. He's that serious about us. He's going to sit still on the floor until we're brave enough to come in and out of the room, in and out of the room, until we can actually curl up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Kurt, we like to end every episode episode with a little bit of an application for people for the week. What do you have for us this week? So this week... um, I just want to invite us, we want to invite you to reflect and then write down as as we, as we often invite you to do, write down and share with someone that you trust, um, what you are aware of in terms of how present you are to yourself and how present those people are who are present to you. Just reflect on that. Who are the people that are present with me and in what way are they enabling me to be present to myself? And then I would invite you to just take some time to write to those folks. You could speak to them because they might be your best friend that you talk to once a week. You could speak to them. But even writing something to them goes a little further because it's making things more permanent. Write to them and let them know that you're thankful for their presence and in what concrete ways you find them to be. And then we'd also like you to meditate on John 15, verse 4, and Matthew 28, verse 20, paying attention to what you sense and image and feel and think 
and how you want to respond with your body in the presence of Jesus as you engage him and as he speaks those words to you and over you. And once again, take some time to journal about that experience and share it with someone that you trust. And in this way, we want to invite us all to be practicing the presence of the one who's always coming to find us. We hope that you find that to be helpful. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you that... Uh, Thank you, Pep. That uh, we get to abide together. Right it's, on. It's awesome. Right on, man. It really is. Right on. It's Thanks be so to God. Rich. Thanks be to God. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to see you next week. Right on, man. Yeah. Until then. Stick around. Uh, if you're on the YouTube here, Amy's coming to join us. So hang on. All right. See you, Kurt. Love you. See you. Love you, too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.